Welcome to the One Player Podcast, the show on solitaire board gaming. I'm your host, Albert, and this is episode 16, the print and play show. Welcome back. Today's episode is pretty interesting, I think. I'm going to talk about print and play games, specifically solitaire print and play games. First, I'm going to do an interview with Chris Hansen, which is hosting the print, the solitaire print and play design contest on BGG. And then I'm going to talk about Raider 16, which is one of the games from last year's contest. I'm going to talk about my experience putting that game together and then uh, playing it. Oh, and before I forget to mention it, make, a, make sure to check out the show notes, either on BGG or in the podcast uh, website itself. I'm going to go ahead and mention references uh, for print and play games. All right, let's jump right into our interview. So anyway, uh, I'm talking to Chris Hansen, who is the, I guess, the founder or administrator of the Solitaire Print and Play Design Contest. Hi, Chris. Hi, uh, how are you? Doing all right. So can, can, what can you tell me about the contest? Um, so the contest is basically just a, it's a design contest focused on solitaire games. Um, there's not a lot of uh, requirements. You know, there's all sorts of games in there from war games to, you know, uh, Euros to, you know, just short little traditional card games even. Uh, um, you know, the, basically the focus is just on solitaire and uh, making the most fun design that you can. And these are previously unpublished games? Yeah, everything in the contest is new. Um, one of the very few entry requirements that we have is uh, the game has to be new. It can't be something that you put out a year ago and now you want to put it in the contest. It's yeah, Everything in it is it should be new. Okay, gotcha. And um, so you said there's all types of games. Uh, how does... How does it get judged? There's a winner in the contest, I guess. It's more of a competition than a contest, huh? Yeah, well, and it's a very friendly contest. Uh, last year, I think a lot of the designers were helping each other out. Someone would put in their entry, and then someone else who had another entry would, you know, comment on it and say, oh, maybe you could tweak this or clarify the rules here. So it was like a contest where everyone was helping each other out, which was pretty cool. But uh mm-hmm. So the voting is is just done by uh, a public vote. Um, last year we just had people uh, email me directly with their top five games, and I gave everything a point system. So their number one game would get a certain amount of points, and their number five game would get a few less points. And then uh, from there, I just added up the totals uh, to get the um, to, you know to determine who the winners were. We we gave prizes for the top three games in the contest. Okay, neat. That sounds like it was a lot of bookkeeping on your side too. <laughs> there was there was a little bit. It was a little crazy. I've I've tried to think this year of maybe making a a, a poll or or something where people can vote and just have the computer tally things rather than me making an Excel sheet on the side. <laughs> wow. So is anybody allowed to vote? Yeah. Um, the, the contest is held on Board Game Geek, so you know you, you need to be a Board Game Geek member to be able to uh, participate. But um, you know, I think most of the people who participate in print and play games and these kind of contests already have a Board Game Geek account anyway. So I don't I don't think it 
hurt anybody. Although a few people did sign up. We had a couple new members to Board Game Geek last year just so that they could participate in the contest. Oh, okay. That's pretty neat. So this is the second year you've had the contest going. The, yeah. Uh, how big was it last year? Uh, so last year we had 32 games entered. And uh, it's a little less than some of the other contests. Um, I, I look back through some of the other contests, and they had like 40 games apiece or, or so. But you know, they were open to all sorts of games, whether it was two-player or six-player or whatever. So this one was a little more limiting with just the solitaire games. So I was pretty happy with 32, but uh, several designers and... Uh, a lot of interest from uh, from board game geek, you know, just general people. I, I think the the contest got over 150 thumbs and was one of the top threads for 2011 uh, wow. when they released their top hundred threads. It was it was somewhere in the middle of a uh, of popular threads. So I thought that was really cool. Yes, a lot of people were interested in it. That's that is really cool. That is neat. Did you did you try out all the games yourself? I made a big effort to. I, I I didn't get to try all of them. There were a few that I just didn't get to because of time. Um, but I did read through the rules at least and, and try to have a pretty good idea of all the games that were entered just so that I could uh, vote for them, um, you know, honestly and, and really decide what I thought was the best. Um, and, and one thing I've been doing since the contest ended is trying to go back and review the games that were entered. Um, I just have been writing reviews on Board Game Geek of them, and, and that way I get to spend a little bit more time with the games and uh, you know get to know them a little better than you know. I kind of rushed through everything to get 32 games played in a short amount of time. Yeah, it's it's really hard, to do, especially if you can actually build and print out all the games. Yeah, yeah, because that takes a fair amount of time as it is, and then reading the rules and playing it, like, you know, it, it was kind mm -hmm. of rushed to get them all in there, but I've really enjoyed going back and looking at them since the contest has ended and doing the reviews, because uh, some of the games that I, you know, I remember playing them and thinking, oh, yeah, this is okay, and then moving on to the next one, and, uh, you know, mm -hmm. for example, I've, I've been playing 8-Bit eight eight Invaders, which is one of the games that was entered in the mm -hmm. contest last year. Yep. Um, and, and that was one of the ones that I played and thought, yeah, it's okay. And as I've been playing it, you know, several times and really trying to get to know the game, I thought, this is a really great game. I wish I <laughs> had more time with it back when the contest was going on, but you, know, you do the best you can with yeah. the time that you have, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, that's funny that that game a couple of years ago I had played around with some sort of Space Invaders, uh, Yahtzee type game. And when I saw the, the pictures of it, I said, wow, that looks a lot like what I did. <laughs> the biggest difference is mine was horrible. <laughs> I think I tried it once and never looked back. The funny thing is, I think there's a handful of uh, Space Invader themed games like oh, really? already out there for print and play um, that I've seen in the past. So, um, you know, it's a popular theme, I think. Yeah, yeah, it sure seems like it's got potential. I'll have to try that one out. It's, it's, it's got the nostalgia factor of, yeah. I loved this game, you know, 20 years ago. <laughs> it's still going to be good, right? Yeah. <laughs> so what, uh, what, was there one winner last year, or did you have categories? Uh, so, yeah, we did. We had a couple categories, um, and then we had an overall, you know, best game overall prize. And that was a game called Inspector Moss 2. Okay. Uh, 
so it, it was a sequel to a game that the designer had made previously and um, I, I don't think that game was terribly well known and, and from talking with the designer I, I've never played it and the designer said yeah it's not very good so <laughs> I, I didn't bother with it but um, it was a team effort from uh, Rebecca Bizell and Jonathan Warren um, so they, they put that together and they won the grand prize overall okay that's neat um do you know have any anybody that's entered last year did the have any publishers publishers shown interest in them so i talked with a couple of the designers about that and mm -hmm. nothing has been picked up yet to my knowledge but it sounds like a couple people have at least had designers look at their games um one of the designers said, you know, oh, we saw how your game in the contest and decided to take a look at it, and and it's being made into a multiplayer variant. They weren't interested in publishing it solitaire, apparently, but so it's it's being reworked as a multiplayer game and possibly going to be published that way. So, uh, but it sounds like a couple people have talked with designers, okay, so, or, or, or uh, publishers. I'm sorry, that's pretty cool. I'm surprised that uh, I mean, on one hand, I'm surprised that there aren't there isn't more interest in publishers in uh, solitaire games. Then on the other hand, it, there does seem to be a lot more lately than there used to be in the past. Yeah, there's a especially in the war game market. There's mm -hmm. a lot coming out. Um, Victory Point Games has done really well with their States of Siege series, and now GMT is publishing that. Yeah, I'm really looking forward um, to that. And there's a. Uh, couple games from legion war games coming out that are solitaire and, and it looks like from what i can see when you look at the gmt pre-orders that something like navajo wars which is solitaire just seems to jump up on the pre-orders so maybe publishers are starting to you know find a market there mm -hmm. yeah one of the games uh from last year's contest i tried i printed out uh, raider 16 and tried that i thought boy that it feels a lot like a victory point game and maybe yeah. part of it was the quality of paper I used to print on it. Print it on, I don't know, <laughs> but <laughs> the the com number of components, the number of counters, and all that, and the mechanisms just felt right for yeah. That it, it's that that's a per, uh, pretty good game that was entered in the contest. It, that actually won the best war game category that we had. Okay, how many categories did you have? Do you remember offhand? Oh, there would be. We, we didn't do official ones. It was just people could say, I want to give a prize for the best sci-fi themed game, or I want to give a prize for the best artwork. I think there worked out to be seven or eight categories, but they were all just individuals. I, I, I had four or five of them, and then the others were from other people. Okay. Okay. That, that sounds pretty good. I like how it's just open to to evolve just as the needs demand, I guess. Yeah. Well, and this year I have thought of making it a little bit more formal and letting people vote on them because last year the person who was offering the prize would just decide, oh, this is my favorite game and, and that one wins. And that's fine. And, and if people want to do that, I'm totally cool with that. But I did think of making a few more categories and kind of saying, you know, okay, this will be for the best one page, you know, easy to print game, and then this will be for the best huge game that's hard to make that maybe doesn't get noticed just because of, you know, the intensity of building it. Not as many people are going to do it. Yeah. But then letting people vote on them and, and opening it up for the community a little bit more. Okay. What kind of prizes do you have? Um, so on Board Game Geek, they have uh, the Geek Gold. Mm -hmm. Yep. And... Uh, 
last year I I forget how much I put into the pot, two or three hundred geek gold or something. But then I opened it up for donations to say, you know, if anyone would like to to donate geek gold for the prize, you know, go ahead. And in the end, we had about one thousand five hundred geek gold donated. So we gave out some pretty big prizes, and you know, I I know it's just pretend money and really isn't worth anything, but. You know, it's cool. You can go mm-hmm. do whatever you want on Board Game Geek by going on a micro badge spending spree or something. <laughs> yeah, you can win <laughs> games on uh, with Geek Golden and whatnot. Yeah, I, I think a few people, from what I saw, they took their prizes uh, and would go to like the games for Geek Gold Lottery mm-hmm. or or things like that. Or, or and one of the designers, uh, in, in fact, I think Raider Sixteen. Bruce Mansfield, I okay. think is his name. He didn't have an avatar or any micro badges, and he won, you know, a hundred geek gold or something for the best war game, and went and got himself an avatar and a couple micro badges. So I thought that was cool to be able to see him participate more on Board Game Geek, and you know, you don't have much of an identity until you have an avatar. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> yeah, like I, I recognize your avatar from different forums and discussions. It's like, I know Chris. So I, I don't think you look a lot like the picture. I always thought that was you with that mustache. <laughs> I guess not. <laughs> um, that's actually the cover of a new Pornographers album, and I just I love that album. I love that band, and uh, that that image just by itself. That image was my avatar for a long time, and then since then I've added a couple other images to it just for a little variety, I guess. So <laughs> <laughs> that's a good idea. So, um, so let's talk about just print and play in general on Solitaire in general. Sure. If a uh, if somebody wants to print out some of the games from the contest, do you have any suggestions for how to start going about it? Just grab a printer and go. Um, I would say like if if you're brand new to print and play games, um, you know, m- when I started. I started pretty small. I think I printed Zombie in My Pocket was my first print-and-play game I ever made, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't do the backs of the cards or the backs of the tiles. I just did really simple, and I think it was just plain letter paper. Um, I, did, I didn't do anything nice. Um, and you know, and I cut it with scissors, so nothing was very straight. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, but I, uh, you know, I, I liked that enough to go look for other games and kind of get into it that way. Um, and then before long, I'm getting nicer tools and stuff, but I, that's my biggest advice. You know, every now and then I'll see someone say, Oh, I, I want to try print and play games. I'm going to print out magic realm or something. Wow, okay. <laughs> that's yeah. That's maybe not a great place to start. Um, you know, it, people can do it, I'm sure, but there's a lot of games from the solitaire contest that are a little bit, uh, smaller, um, the eight bit invaders that we mentioned earlier, um, Shadows over Lassiter, Lord of the Rings, the adventure deck game. You know, all of these games are essentially just a deck of cards, mm-hmm. um, which which you know is not too hard to to make. Um, the winner, um, Inspector Moss Two, not a it's it's not a very difficult build either. It's a little more involved than uh, than uh, than like the card games are, but you know it, it's really not very hard if you wanted to try it. But then there's there's several games that were in the contest that are quite a bit more difficult to build and and more involved. So, you know, my advice is you know start with start with some of the smaller ones. 
Yeah, that makes sense. And, th- and then build your way up. And, uh, one of the things I've done is I've been building games. You know, I've been doing print and play for a few years now. Is, you know, I've, I've tried out different tools, and now I have lots of opinions. Like if I'm going to build a tile, I'm going to use a rotary cutter and do such and such. But if I'm doing cards, I'm going to use an X-Acto knife. And, and it was all just trial and error, you know, kind of see what you like to do. Okay, and the nice thing about print and play is you could choose to put a lot of time and effort into it just a little bit, just depending on what you want to get out of that game. Either way, you've got a game that works well. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and sometimes if I just want to try something out quick, I don't make a very nice copy. Just, you know, I print it on the low ink mode and just cut it out quick just to try it. And then other times, if I know I like the game or I'm really excited about it, I'll get everything mounted and spend a lot of time, you know, making a really nice copy. Um, mm-hmm. Hey, it could be easily as expensive as a professionally produced game. Yeah, um, and I know some people uh, have spent over two hundred dollars making print and play games, just as nice as they possibly can, and. Yeah, but that's never been me, but some people get into it more than I do. <laughs> yeah. There's also things you could do, like using um, ArtsCal to get your cards printed and whatnot. If anybody not familiar with ArtsCal, that's a service where you could uplo- you upload images to their servers, and they'll put them on cards for you. Basically, you tell them what image you want on each card and that sort of thing, and you get professionally produced cards. It's slightly thin quality, but better than anything I'll make at home. Yeah, I, I have a few games that are on ArtsCow decks, and uh, they're they're pretty decent. Um, um, and then there's a, a there's a few people on Board Game Geek. Andrew Tolson runs Print and Play Productions, and he'll make I believe just about any game as as long as the designer gives permission. Uh, he'll make a game for you. Okay. Um, and there's a there's one or two other BGG users who will do that. And then there's some services like the Game Crafter. I believe they make lots of print-and-play games. And some designers, um, Todd Sanders, who made Shadows Upon Lassiter in the contest, mm-hmm. I see him selling copies of his other print-and-play games. He'll make you know like a really nice copy and have it available for sale on his website. Okay. So you know you you can print it yourself for free, but you know if if you would like someone else to do it, there's there's several options for you. That's right. You know, another thing I've done in the past is uh, gone to the thrift stores looking for game bits. And, you know, if you go, you find a Monopoly for a dollar, you could have a pawns and money and all sorts of bits you could use. Mm-hmm. I, f- I found an old Risk set quite a while ago that had, you know, it was the one that used cubes. So okay. it's one of the very old ones. And uh, I happened to find two of those so that I just had tons of cubes. And uh, I've I've used those for print and play games ever since. That's a good idea. Yeah, at some point I found little pawns, about half inch pawns, like a couple hundred of them. And they've just lasted forever. Which is really handy, but they they work kind of like cubes. I got so many mm-hmm. in like six or eight different colors. Uh, so, I, there was a a game that had thirty dice in it or something that I bought for two dollars, <laughs> and uh, so now all my print and play games have all the dice I need as well. <laughs> yeah, thrift thr- thr- stores are. You know, they can be a good way to get some pieces like that. Yeah, that's a, that's definitely I think a, a good resource if you've got the patience to to go look. Yeah. So, how long have you been gaming? Oh, so about five years. Uh, I've been gaming my whole life, but 
you know, the Euros and war games and stuff I only discovered maybe five years ago, I think in 2007 or so. Okay. Okay, what kind of games do you like to play normally? Um, I, I play a lot of war games. Um, I enjoy, you know, kind of learning the military history and, uh, you know, kind of trying to reenact the battles on, on the war game map. I have fun with that. Um, my wife isn't a war gamer at all, so I play a lot of, um, like the Cosmos two-player line. We both enjoy that. Um, okay. But, yeah, if it's just me playing a solitaire game, I, I often will reach for a war game. Okay, I find it very hard to, to make the time for a war game. Most of them seem to last at least a couple hours. Yeah, and then that's one thing that's nice with a solitaire game is, you know, if you need to go to bed and come back to it tomorrow, you know, you you can leave it set up and do that and pray that the kid doesn't come in. <laughs> you must not have cats. <laughs> nope, nope. Uh, My wife and I are both allergic, so our games are a little more secure. <laughs> yeah, that, that, my cat loves games and counters and all that. Gosh, um, so what? What percent of your what percentage of your gaming is solitaire? Do you think? Uh, right now, it's close to a hundred percent. I'm in the middle of a master's program, and. Uh, so a lot of my time is taken up with school. So, you know, after I get done with my homework, it might be 10 o'clock at night. And that's just too late to have somebody come over and play a game. Yeah, I understand that completely. Hey, you're a busy guy then. Yeah, I'm, although I'm I'm taking the summer off just to take a break. And I think that's when we'll do the, the 2012 contest. So I'm not you know, having homework overwhelm me. Okay, you mentioned the 2012 contest. Before I forget, what are the dates of the contest? Has, hasn't has the entry started yet? Um, no, there's a discussion thread where people are talking about it, and I I know that a lot of designers are are you know planning what their game will be already. Um, but the so the official dates of the contest are July through August. Um, July is kind of the entry period, and August is the playing and voting period. Um, okay. However, you know, a lot of people will present their games a little earlier, and I, I think last year I started accepting games at, in May for the contest because people were just excited and ready to go, and so. So so why not? Yeah. So so the people enter their con- their their game in July, and then from July until the deadline in August, it's open. I guess it depends on the person, but it's open for discussion if somebody wants to post it. Yeah. Um, so there, there were a few people who posted, you know, like that the, the entry deadline is two days away, and all of a sudden they're posting a game that you know, <laughs> no one's ever they, they haven't posted on the thread, no one's ever heard from them, and you know, and that's cool. Uh, yeah, several people did that, but I think the majority of people had posted, you know, like a month in advance, and. You know, I said earlier people were providing feedback to each other and mm-hmm. commenting on each other's games. So a lot of games got tweaked in that time period. As someone would say, "Oh, I played your game, and I think maybe this could be better or something." And so it, it was cool to see the games change from what they were originally entered as, you know, as as they got user feedback. Okay. But then, but then after that uh, point. 
just to make it fair for everyone and you know after the entry deadline passes you know you, you, there's no more changes allowed to the games and there's no more new games allowed and that way everyone gets a chance to play whatever games they're interested in um you know i i don't know that anyone was able to play all of the games but i think you just you know pick the ones that look the best to you to try out and uh you know that way someone wasn't able to improve their game you know after the entry deadline and you know just to keep it fair. Okay. So I guess all the games have to be listed publicly in the forums. Otherwise, you just can't download the game to try it out. Uh, yeah, most people would create a thread somewhere on BoardGameGeek, like in the Board Game Design Forum or something, and then link to the files on Dropbox or Google Docs or you know one, one of the online storage lockers. Then you know you could download your game from there a few people created a game entry on board game geek and then just uploaded the files um through through the regular file system okay so we, we had a couple games that were added to the database you know for entry into the contest okay the, the bgg was pretty lenient then on that I think they, they they mostly take your word for it. If you say the game is done, they you you add it to the contest. And I think most people who did that didn't make a ton of changes to their games afterwards. Okay, gotcha. So if I want to go find the contest on BGG, there is there is one main thread that I came across already, and that would have most of the discussion about the competition itself. Will it also have links to the, the game entries or anything like that from there? Yeah, so I, I will be creating an entry thread um, in the next little while here. Uh, like I said, last year I did it in May, I think, and so I'll probably do it about the same time there. And it will have all of the entries in the first post. Um, you know, last year I think that thread got up to 25 or 26 pages or something. And so not everyone wants to read all that. So I try to keep all the relevant information in the first post so that you can just follow that and see the games that are entered. And I announced the winners in, in the very first post as well, just, just so that it would be easy for people to find what they needed to know. Yeah, 25 pages is overwhelming if you jump in in the middle of the competition. Yeah, and a lot of it is not relevant anymore because, you know, it was something we were talking about three weeks ago that doesn't matter, you know, at the end of the contest. <laughs> yeah, okay. Okay, well, um, I think that's going to be everything for tonight, so I appreciate your time. Oh, absolutely. I'm happy to talk with you. All right, and I uh, hope the contest goes well, and good luck to everybody that enters. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview. I really enjoyed talking to Chris, and, and I found it really informative to hear about the contest. For some reason, I find it really hard to keep up with that sort of thing on BGG. So on to today's game. Last week I printed out, I put together, and I played Raider 16 Atlantis, which is one of the games from the print and play contest from last year. As Chris said in the interview, it won the, uh, the award for the best war game. This game is about merchant raiders in World War II. What that means is uh, German ships disguised to look like regular merchant ships that will go out and attack uh, other merchant ships that came across. First, I'm going to talk about putting the game... Well, first I'm going to talk about the components. Then I'm going to explain how I put them together. And finally, I'll talk about the gameplay itself. So Raider 16 doesn't have a whole lot of components. As far as putting it together, I'd say it's a low complexity. What it has 
comes as I think it was five or six PDF files. First, there was a map which is would print. It prints onto a one eleven by seventeen sheet of paper. The then there's fifty four cards. The map is basically a map of the Atlantic and Indian Oceans, with India in the middle of the map. The Atlantic Ocean on the left, Indian Ocean on the right, and it is divided into zones, which are basically squares. There's about 18 squares that make up the the portions of those two oceans that you could travel to. And then there's uh, sea lanes that the merchant ships will use going back and forth across that. And there's a really neat and simple mechanism for moving the merchant ships along on their routes. And I'll get more into that later. Then there are 54 cards in this, which it's a nice round number as far as playing cards go. There are three Raider cards. At the beginning of the game, you'll pick one, and that will represent your ship. There are then probably about 45 or so action cards, which have a lot of information in it, both, well, not both. It, it tells you how many actions you could take in the turn. It could tell you the weather for the turn. It is the ship that you get to attack. It contains the actions you get to play. It'll show you the victory points if you attack a ship successfully and defeat it, and some other stuff. So, so they are pretty thorough. There are some something called BAM's letter, BAM's code letter cards. There's three of those, and they're basically used. They basically they signify that it's time to make, potentially change a BAM's letter code in the game. the The rules actually explain what the BAM's code is. And it was used as a secret message or code system, I'm not quite sure, to help, used by the Allies to, to transmit messages. In terms of game, it basically affects which column in the chart you're using to determine if you're going to be able to attack a ship or not. That way, it basically it changes every game. Anyway, there's also RN deployment card, which means all the Royal Navy ships can be taken off the board and put back on, if there are any on the board. And finally, an order is from SK-1, or maybe SKL, but I think it's SK-1, which tells you which can trigger the end of the game. Besides the counters, there's also, well, I'm sorry, besides the cards, there's also one counter sheet, which probably had about, I'd say, 50 to 60 counters on it, two different sizes. Oh, three different sizes, actually. There's also some rectangular counter counters for your ships, for your German ships and the Royal Navy ships. There's the rule book, which is about 20 pages. There are three charts that you have to print out, and two charts, and a player aid sheet. Okay, so as far as building the game and putting it together, I decided to go an easy route instead of spending a lot of time and effort to, to make it really nice. First, I took the map to, to Office Depot and just had it printed out. Because it's 11 by 17, I don't have a printer that could do that. I just had it printed on regular paper, and I could fold it in half and store it that way. Actually, since then, I learned that the latest version of uh, Adobe Acrobat can actually print large single pages into a uh, into a poster format, basically print into multiple sheets. If I'd known that, I could have probably just done it at home. The older versions definitely didn't have that option. I mean, this is like, as a few months ago, I couldn't do that. Anyway, next was the 54 cards. I printed that at home on cardstock. The cards do not have a back image, so it was easy to do. I just print the one side, and then I just cut them with scissors, which is easy enough. The first time I tried to play the game, I just 
shuffled the cards and used them that way and it was really hard to shuffle because the the paper kind of sticks together and it just didn't work so well so I got card sleeves for that put all the cards in card sleeves and they shuffle much easier um, it also makes them a little stiffer and just easier to work with in general unfortunate men also had to go back and trim some of the cards because it's just a little bit too snug cutting the cards was probably the hardest or the, the most time-consuming part of the process I think I probably spent about three hours doing that I was just hanging at the table with my wife and cutting cards and she's doing other stuff and that was nice after that was the counter sheet I printed that on a single sticker sheet which is basically a sticker paper that's eight and a half by eleven so it runs right through the printer I stuck those onto a poster board and then cut them out again I just cut it by scissor so it's nice and easy they're not perfect but that's okay for, by me this was also kind of time consuming to cut but not too bad the car the counters they came out nice once I mounted them on the poster board they, they have a nice they're not too thick but they're they're easy to handle if you want higher quality counter sheets you could actually print them on um, you could actually print them on chipboard you could buy that at a craft supply store I bought a sheet the other day that I think was about larger than 11 by 17 maybe maybe double that I'm not sure for about five or six dollars and that's a lot thicker. It's probably like standard counter thickness is what I think. And next were the, the rule book and the charts and the, the play rate sheet. I, all those I just printed on the printer because those were all 8.5 by 11 papers. So that was just easy enough to do. If you want to get fancy with this game, you could mount the map. You could probably print it on a sticker sheet and then also mount that on a chipboard. The cards, if if you want, you could have... You could probably upload those images to Artscow, and then have the have them print out, and then have them print out the deck for you. Since the game brings 54 cards, it's perfect because Artscow is will give you a 54 card deck. The only thing about the cards is that the it doesn't bring a design for the back of the cards. So you'd have to make your own. Probably not a big deal, but you know, it's just something you got to do anyway. The other unfortunate part about Artscow is that it'll take a while to upload the images. I've only tried that once with something else and I found it really hard. I got frustrated in the end because it didn't look right once I uploaded the images and I decided to just give up with that, let somebody else do it. That was it. The whole process of putting the game together took me just a couple days and a couple hours a night and it was a nice uh, relaxing activity to do. Once I had everything printed out and ready I went ahead and read through the rules and got ready to play the game and that leads into how to play the game so the first thing you do is select one of the Raider cards remember I told you there's three you're gonna pick one and set the other two aside and not use them for this game the Raider card basically tells you there's basically an easy a medium and a hard Raider card the main attribute attribute from it is the uh, hand size but you, it also but it also limits how many prize ships you can capture after that you shuffle the rest of the cards together to form a deck Draw the top card, and that's going to determine your BAMS code. There's a letter in the bottom, and that is the BAMS code letter at the start of the game, and it's going to determine which column you refer to when you find, go figure out if you found a ship or not. Then you draw up to fill your hand, put the suspicion markers into a cup, and the contact markers into another cup. The contact markers basically tell you where the ships are on the ocean, and you don't know what kind of ship it is yet, you know there's a ship somewhere in that zone. So you're going to place two of them on the board to begin with. I'm sorry, four of them. 
once all that's done, you're ready to start playing. The, the game goes like this. First you draw a card. It, if it's either a BAMS code card, uh, RN deployment, or an orders from SKL, those are special actions. You, you pause the game and go ahead and do that. And this is where I think the rules start getting a little bit confusing. I'm not sure after you process one of those cards, you then go ahead and draw a regular another card again looking for a regular card because the other cards tell you what the weather is like for the turn and how many actions you get. It might be that if you get one of those other cards, one of the the BAMs called RN Deployment Orders, you don't get any actions or anything else, which means you don't do anything else for the rest of the turn, and then you go to the next turn and draw a card. Anyway, it wasn't entirely clear, but let's just say you draw a card, either it's a BAMS code, you act upon it, and then you draw another card until you get a regular card, which, as I said, will tell you the weather for the turn and the number of actions that you get. Actually, that card does at least one other thing. It has an event in the upper corner, and you're going to do that event next. The event could be either draw a new contact counter and place it on the map, basically another ship you now know about, or you know its location. It could be to move the contacts. Okay. The second action that you could draw is move contact, which basically means you move all the counters, all the contact counters on the board. Their counters are either red or green. The red counters generally move from right to the left, and the green ones from left to right where I might have that backwards, I'm not sure, but that's a second action, just move all the counters. If they've reached the end space where there's a port and they have to be moved again, then they get taken off the board. I think that nicely simulates all the the commerce going back and forth across the oceans. The next possible action is the rela to relax suspicion. You roll 3DR, so basically three six-sided dice, add up the number, and that's going to give you a zone number. You check that zone. If there's a suspicion marker on that zone, you remove one. The suspicion markers have different levels of ranking, I guess. The lowest rank is a question mark, the next one is QQQ, and the third is RRRR. And I think these are actually codes that were actually used during World War II. The lower the rank, the, the less impact it has in the game, but that's also the order you have to remove them in if there happens to be a suspicion marker in this space. Anyway, the fourth possible action is to place a suspicion marker. You use the same, uh, you do it the same, well, it works pretty much the same way as removing a marker in reverse. You roll the three dice, add up the number, pick the zone, and then draw a random counter from the cup. There's actually one more action type, and the rules forgot to mention it. It's activate the Royal Navy. It's basically, that means move the, all the Royal Navy ships that are on the board if any of you have shown up yet. These are the guys that are after you and are trying to kill you. Okay, so once you've done all this, you're now ready to actually take your actions for the turn. Now remember, the, the card you drew at the beginning of the turn tells you how many actions you have. It's generally one, two, or three actions you could take. Really, those are action points that you have. The, f act well, the actions you could do are either move, which costs one action point, and you could do one move per turn. Uh, second action is discard. You could discard one card per action point you spend. Those, uh, and then the next ones are search or hunt. To do the search or hunt actions, you have to actually play a card from your hand. Some of the cards have a search icon, some have a hunt icon, which basically means you could use the card for that action. If it doesn't have the appropriate icon, you can't take that action with that card. 
each of those actions cost an action point, but there's all, they could also be done multiple times, and the way that works is different depending on the action type. There are other icons that go along with taking the action if... You remember when you drew the card at the beginning of the turn, it tells you what time of day it is, whether it's day, night, or storm, which isn't a time, but anyway. The action card you take might, will also have a weather icon, or condition icon, and if it has the same icon, then that action card will actually give you some extra abilities that you can use which can impact the number of markers or add contact ships if you're doing a search or if you're doing a hunt it could give you bonuses to attack and different things like that so you've gone we've gone through the actions when you do the search action it's basically trying to find more ships on the ocean and basically to add more contact markers you roll dice and depending on the current let's call it threat level or suspicion level you might be able to add another ship, and I found that at least early on, you're almost always guaranteed to be able to add another ship because you had to roll higher than a zero. However, one's always a failure, so you have to roll higher than a one. And if it succeeds, you put one of those contact markers on the space you're currently in in the zone. The other action you could take is hunt. If you do that, you have to be in a zone with a ship, and you get to see if you can attack it. You flip over that counter and it has a number in the back, and then you look at the chart and cross-reference it with the BAMS code that I told you about, and it'll tell you if you're able to find the ship or not. The options are not at all, or roll one or two dice to see if you manage to find it. If you don't, you used up that card in that action, and you go on with your turn. If you do find the ship and you're able to attack it, you then draw another card from the deck, and that is now the ship you're trying to attack. Generally, it's a merchant marine ship, but there are a couple Royal Navy ships that might come up that you have to actually fight. But let's say you have your combat. If you win, you take the card, it comes out of the game, and it's now a victory point that you have, one or two victory points. If you lose, every time you try and attack it, you're going to put a another suspicion marker on the board. And you could keep attacking until you hit it, or you decided you've put enough suspicion markers and you want to go on. Also, when you do attack at the end of the turn of the attack, you always put a marker on anyway. So the more combat you do, the, the harder it is to get around the oceans without getting caught. The way you get caught, other than that random Royal Navy Merchant Marine ship I mentioned that could be in the deck, is when you draw the Change BAMS code card. There's wheels in the deck, and to change a code, you have to roll a die and get a number lower than the number of suspicion markers out in the ocean right now. If you succeed, you change the code by drawing another card, or, well, not or, and you then got to place the Royal Navy ship associated with that card. There's three ships total, just like there are three cards. Once those are on the board, they kind of start hunting you wherever their suspicion markers are at. They go to those locations whenever a, a move action shows up for them. And they're pretty dangerous. I fought I only had to fight one once, and I lost. And if you lose against them, that against them that ends the game, which is pretty unfortunate. The other way for the game to end, which is much better, the other way for the game to end, which is much better, is you draw the orders from Ski card, or SK1 or whatever card. And if the three Royal Navy ships are on the board, that triggers the game of the end. It's kind of dangerous for you, so you're going to go ahead back to Germany. You're going to try to do that. You basically have to get your ship to the corner of the board 
successfully so you could leave the map and finish the game. At that point, you tally up your victory points. Uh, you have to have at least 25 for a win. In that game where I lost, I only had about, I think, 12 or 15 points at that point. So even if the game had ended then, it would have been a loss for me. So anyway, that's the way the, the game works. When I played it, I found the game went a little bit slow for me, at least at first when there weren't many markers on the board. I was just going around and doing combat. I was hitting or sinking ships a lot, which was great, getting a lot of markers. But as, as more suspicion markers ended up showing up on the board, it became harder and harder to hit. I found the first couple games really hard to play. I had to constantly keep referring back to the rulebook. Really slowed me down. The actions that you could take from when you play the action cards, the the special bonuses you get of the weather conditions match, I had to constantly keep referring to the rule book right somewhere in the middle of the book, and that just yeah, it took time. Uh, I also also find the rules a little bit confusing. They're very well written. There's a lot of detail, but I think the layout confused me sometimes. For example, the first game I played for about the first half of the game, I was actually doing all the actions every turn, adding markers, adding suspicion markers, adding uh, merchant marines, moving the merchant marines. So there's just a lot of extra upkeep going up, going on. And, and as I hinted, the, the icons in the cards were not intuitive at first. It, it takes a little while to get used to them. Because of that, I had to keep referring to the rulebook. By the end of the, the second game, I think, I pretty much had them done pretty well. And it was going a lot faster at that point. What I really like about this is the rulebook has a lot of historical information. It talks about the the merchant uh, raiders, and it talks about the BAMS code and explains how they work and the Royal Navy and all that. And for free print-and-play game, that's pretty cool. I like that the gameplay is also very simple and straightforward. There really is, once you get going, it, the actions are pretty much the same every turn. And uh, once you get going, there's also not a lot of looking in the rulebook anymore. It just happens at first. And I also like the the way the game looks. It look, just the art is really nice and it's really well done and it just looks fantastic. I'm really impressed with the the art on the map. All in all, it's a pretty decent uh, print and play game worth trying. The nice thing about the print and play games is you could start simple and like with one like this, just don't spend much time and print it out. And if you like it, you could upgrade components a little by little. There's no reason why you can never. There's no reason why you can't print the the map again and then mount it and whatnot if if you like the game and want something nicer than the simple map you started with. And finally, one thing I should mention, which I should probably have said at the beginning, the game was designed by Bruce Mansfield. And it was printed last year, and as I said, it's part of the print and play design contest. So if you go to BGG, you can find a, a link to the game, and if you go through the forum discussions, you'll find a link to where the files are at. I'll make sure to include all of those in the show note for you. Oh, I almost forgot, there's also a Vassal module for this game, so you could actually play it on your PC if you want, and you don't even have to print on any of the components. Anyway, that's it. That's uh, Raider 16, Atlantis. Well, that's the end of today's episode. If you would like to contact me, you can find me as Fractaloon on BoardGameGeek, or you can email me at oneplayeralbert at gmail.com. The intro music is copyright Angus and is protected by a Creative Commons license. The song and copyright information can be found at gemendo.com. The show is published under Creative Commons, non-commercial, share-alike license. Thanks for listening.